It can be lonely at the top. We all know what it's like to lead and own a business and wanting to scale, but finding yourself at a glass ceiling. That is where the power of collaboration and connection comes in. Hi, I'm Natasha Milani. I'm an expert at helping businesses and business owners harness the power of collaboration to connect, scale and grow. I am passionate about collaboration. I believe that no one executes alone and we all do better when we do it together. Welcome to this Power of Collaboration podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. I hope that you get the inspiration and information you need to harness the power of collaboration to break through your glass ceilings. Today, we're talking to David Johnson, Managing Director of Mott McDonald. Welcome, David. Hi, Natasha. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have today from the lens of as Managing Director of Mott McDonald, but also you've seen a lot of collaboration in the city, state and Australia and beyond um, about bringing great projects together. So looking forward to the conversation. Let's just start by a bit of background about you, David. Okay, so I grew up in South Australia, in country South Australia, in Strathalbyn. Went to university in Adelaide, um, which was fantastic and started my career as a civil engineer in 1980. So I wasn't sure where civil engineering would take me, so in the early days I was doing civil infrastructure, small-scale projects, if you like. But one of my early projects was Adelaide Oval, um, restoration of the scoreboard, and then I got involved with the demolition of the Southern Stand and the building of the Bradman Stand, and that sort of inspiration to do something for the state um, sort of was something that drove my career from that point. And share with us a little bit more about Mott McDonald as a, as a company. So back then I was working for a company called Connor Wagner and Connor Wagner won the project to build the first underground loop, um, railway loop in Melbourne. That was an interesting project but they needed help from an international company so they found a company called Mott McDonald in the UK. And Mott McDonald in the UK had done some of the very uh, early London underground construction. And that work was in the early 1900s, actually. Uh, very interesting projects because they were using steam trains to pull the tubes through, through those tunnels back then. Mm. And one of the challenges, of course, was getting the steam and the... Um, and the uh, smoke out of the tunnel systems and Mott McDonald was involved in that. And so over time, Mott McDonald developed this huge expertise in sort of infrastructure projects and Connell Wagner brought Mott McDonald to Australia. So that was in the 50s. So Connell Wagner had this history and in 1997, 98, I took my family, I have three daughters, to London to work on various projects, including... Uh, Wembley Stadium and the reason they asked me to work on Wembley Stadium so they knew I had a history with Adelaide Oval I worked on the Melbourne Great Southern Stand and those projects were sort of building blocks for me to get involved with Wembley Stadium we bid Wembley Stadium we built Wembley Stadium and it was a fantastic project and then I so I learned a lot from Mont McDonald in that time and then I came back to Australia so coming back here, we worked on the, the extension to the convention centre. Uh, 
So that was an interesting project. That was the um, we worked with an architect from Chicago, Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. That was a fantastic uh, project. Again, a piece of infrastructure that was very important to the state. And so I developed my career um, in sort of building infrastructure that was uh, for public infrastructure, if you like, social infrastructure for the state. Ten years ago, we started Mont McDonald because I had all that history and that knowledge of Mont McDonald here in Australia. And um, there was just two of us and it was quite a challenge and quite a journey and now we're a 1,000 people. So you mentioned you didn't know where being a civil engineer was going to take you, um, but there's a huge amount of impact that you've had. You talk about the, the passion and you have for South Australia. Yeah. Just share with us about becoming a civil engineer and now transitioning that to your purpose and, and the impact that you have on yeah. cities and states and people. So it's really interesting what's happening in our industry. So traditionally, we were engineers building infrastructure and, and everyone cared a lot about the, uh, the engineering and the infrastructure and the hard-built form. But these days, actually, our purpose is all built around social outcomes. And that transformation from hard, you know, engineering infrastructure into projects which actually make a difference is very, very important. But that has to be built on things like technical excellence. We've got a huge focus on our digital, uh, you know, the digital intervention so that we can use data, for example, to drive um, projects using concepts like digital twins, creating digital twins of the infrastructure and using the data to tune that infrastructure. For example, we did Adelaide Oval, as you know, and developing Adelaide Oval as a project uh, was quite interesting, but we knew that was just on the verge of the digital rev revolution in terms of infrastructure. And getting data from Adelaide Oval is a very important part of running that piece of infrastructure because you can use that data to drive the fan experience. You know, where do the fans go? Where do they buy, you know, their pie, their chips? Where do they get a drink? What products do they want to use? What time do they arrive at the stadium? When do they leave the, the stadium? All this data we now use to design infrastructure, which is um, similar to what we're doing in Sydney at the moment for metros, for, for example. So it's all about the customer experience. It's all about the social outcome. And uh, that is how I actually met you when I was a councillor in the city of Adelaide through the Adelaide Oval project. And it was a truly astonishing to see that project evolve. It changed our cultural landscape here, not just the physical, but the cultural way we thought about ourselves in Adelaide. And you drove a lot of that. And we worked on the Lacornu site on O'Connell Street. Again, you drove some of that thinking. So I think it's important everyone knows the impact that you've had on the day-to-day -day when they drive past the Oval or 88 O'Connell Street that, uh, that the brains of David Johnson is behind that. <laughs> I just wanted to share that with everyone. So Mott McDonald, um, you said you went over to the UK, then you came back, you established Mott McDonald Asia Pacific, based here in Adelaide, head office, two people, now at a 1,000 people. Just from the lens of growing a business from two people to a 1,000 people, can you just share um, some insights about the challenges, the strategy, the business side of the conversation? Yeah, well... First of all, it's quite a, quite a challenge when you go from an existing company and you have 
you know everyone, you have a lot of levers to pull, you, ha- you know all the infrastructure within that company, to starting from scratch, that's quite a challenge. So we gave it a lot of thought, um, but we knew that we wanted to build it on a nice culture, a lovely place to work, a happy place to work, a respectful place to work. So culture is number one. The other thing about culture in our industry is technical excellence is critical because if we're not great at what we do, you've got nothing really to give our clients. So you have to decide what the building blocks are, if you like, of your business in terms of culture. And then the second thing is change. So you have to be willing to, I think, be agile as a business and your strategy, the the strategy, I remember the strategy we determined back then has changed a lot over the past 10 years. Now, how do you do that without creating chaos within your business is very important. It's a bit like a a funnel. You know, I I look at people, you start really with one or two people. It's like creating a business. You share your strategy and then you share that with a couple more people and a couple more people. And by the time you get to the top with your strategy, um, a multitude of people have already participated in creating that strategy. So that means when you get there, you get a lot of buy-in to where you're taking the business. And if you haven't got that, if you haven't got your people going with you, you just can't get the support and the drive of your staff. And I've got to say, you know, I, I, I struggle to get my staff to stop working. You know, we don't tell them to work hard, but they're so passionate about what they do. They do it anyway. And that's an indication to me that they are actually participating in the business. They love what we're doing and they love the culture of Mont McDonald. And that's no accident. You said, you know, you, you built the culture, you created those building blocks. And I have had many a conversation with you, David, and you have the, an ability to think strategically. When it comes to strategy... You know, in our last podcast, Anthony Kittle nicely said that strategy is about what you don't do as much as about what you do do. How do you take those ideas and actually put them into a bit of a comprehensive way of rolling it out in your business? Yeah. So I guess we focus on two things. Um, When you're thinking about future strategy, you have to make sure that your current business is stable and performing well. But stability means it also needs to be agile. So we might uh, have what we think our clients need, but, you know, we have meetings with our clients and they're always asking for different things. So that agility and that ability to respond to their needs quickly is part of the strategy. But while you're doing that, you have to be looking forward. And we have 10 initiatives at the moment which we're driving and investing in things like pathways to zero carbon. How do we help our clients actually achieve carbon neutrality? We're very proud that Mark McDonald did that two years ago. We became accredited as the first engineering company globally to achieve that. So that's an example. We're working on uh, cybersecurity, digital, I've already uh, mentioned, digital twins. So these, these projects and social outcomes, resilience up in Asia um, as a result of climate change. So we're working on how we respond to these things and looking forward all the time. As we're, at the same time, we're driving our business uh, with its current building blocks, which are around transportation, energy, buildings, 
advisory and water. They're the building blocks of our business. All the things that society actually needs to live, work and play. And that's a really nice structure. So I've got that quite clear in my head now, thank you. And you are working in an environment where cutting edge is status quo. You have to think like that every day. You talked about um, some of the things that we know about. We've, we've all commonly talked about uh, carbon neutrality. What do you think is next on the horizon? What do you see is, is something that might not be common language already? Well, people talk a lot about our digital future. And, you know, sometimes when people discuss this subject, it hasn't got a lot of substance or depth. We are investing almost, um, well, we work in pounds, so 25 million pounds, so $50 million at the moment in our digital future and trying to map out not only what we need as a business to be highly digital, but also to respond to the needs of our clients. And I, I mentioned it before, using data in particular to drive infrastructure projects is critical. We have, as a society, so much data and, uh, frankly, it's just not used efficiently or effectively to do that. So we, we create these digital twins now and they are, you know, a virtual representation of a piece of infrastructure and using that digital twin, we can apply data from all sorts of uh, sources to try different things in the digital twin before we apply that to the piece of infrastructure and that is a great place to be that will be the future everything in the future will have a digital twin it will have a digital representation so that means you know it could be your car and that already happens it could be a piece of infrastructure you know it might be a hospital for example we can use data with a digital twin to design a hospital before we create that hospital and then once we've built and created that hospital that data can be used to improve its efficiency that's a completely different world and so data is absolutely critical. The other thing is social outcomes, of course, for people. I think there's a huge shift in the way people think about, as I said before, the way they work, the way they live, the way they play. And people want different things. It's not sort of nine to five anymore. Uh, people want flexibility in their work life. Uh, they want different experiences at work. And that, considering that in all, all the built form that we are designing has to be uh, paramount because if you're not in that zone, then uh, especially working for private developers, for example, if we're not in that zone, the products that are being presented to market just don't have the edge that they need to have to be competitive. To those that are listening, data, data, data is, is a core message and and you use it at a large scale. Yeah. But it really, at any scale, we really should be using data to inform us, to create better outcomes. I think that's a very strong message for anyone listening to think about what that means for them and, and their business. I want to um, check in with you about collaboration and some projects that, where you've seeing collaboration as an, as an example. Before I do that, though, I just want to get a, a quick snapshot about where COVID um, has impacted uh, your business and the projects and, and your clients in terms of infrastructure. 
So COVID's been, of course, a, a challenge for our people um, for all sorts of reasons. We are a global company of 17,000 people, privately owned global company. We're in North America, UK, through the Middle East, across to India and then Asia Pacific, which is the piece I look after. So very diverse um, range of uh, offices and countries that we work in. Uh, the response to COVID is quite different. You know, some people are happy to work from home because they have lovely homes, they've got space, they have comfort. But we don't think about people, for example, in Asia who have very, you know, some people who work for us have very small accommodation, for example, and it's very difficult for them to just go home and work for months from home. So we have to come up with different responses in different locations to support our people. And that may involve, you know, opening our offices and making sure our people are safe in those offices. So that's the personal response. From a business uh, point of view, it's actually been really interesting because we have spent so much money on digital. We sent basically our 17,000 people home and our systems held up quite well. So we can still design, um, we can still produce produce you know, documentation, if you like, uh, for our clients globally with everyone working at home. In fact, our productivity went up. We measure productivity and our productivity went up because people were just working hard from home. It was quite incredible, actually. So from a business point of view, it's been okay. And most governments have decided to stimulate their economies by investing in infrastructure. So we're busy, very, very busy. We do have to consider COVID in the future. So we are designing metros and airports in a different way because we need to think about social distancing. We need to think about how we might shut down part of an airport to respond to a pandemic, how we might keep people separate. So we are considering these things now for future events that might happen like COVID-19. Thank you. Interesting. And, and uh, all businesses need to think in a different way. We're going to use infrastructure in a different way. But um, noting there that you measure productivity, which I think is another good insight. Now let's go into delve into my favourite topic, collaboration. Yes. And I've seen so many examples, I guess, from a physical infrastructure point of view, um, you, you know, collaboration is critical, I, I would say, day to day for you, working with your clients and governments and coming up with new ideas. L let's talk about collaboration. Let's start with a project that's front of our mind here in Adelaide, Adelaide Oval. Yeah. Talk to me about how collaboration played a role in the redevelopment of Adelaide Oval. Yeah, so I guess Adelaide Oval was an interesting challenge, of course, because football left Adelaide Oval in the 70s and uh, there had been some challenges between football and cricket. And, of course, uh, cricket had then taken control of Adelaide Oval and football had moved down to Westlakes. So I guess the first challenge was to, uh, I think government were pretty keen to do the project, but the challenge was to get football and cricket to participate in that project in a meaningful way so they both had, you know, a successful outcome. That was tricky. And it involved lots and lots of meetings and lots of discussion. And it's a bit like the strategy I was talking about it before. You start, 
you know, talking to one or two people, socialising some ideas and then broadening that discussion until you get to a point where everyone really buys into uh, what you're trying to achieve. We had some challenges. We had some challenges with the council, Adelaide City Council, and thank you to you, Natasha. <laughs> you were very supportive on the project and, again, got us a, a sort of an audience with that council to buy into what we were trying to achieve. I can remember we were just doing so many presentations. I think we got up to three or 400 presentations just explaining to people what the redevelopment of Adelaide Oval was about. And in the end, it became self-fulfilling. Everyone, and we used to uh, uh, give pieces of information to people, secret pieces of information, we'd share information with people they would buy into it. They would think that was special. They would tell their friends and their colleagues and you're sort of building this this uh, outcome that was self-fulfilling in the end. So it's all about, you know, people say it's all about communication. It is about communication, but it's about what you tell people. It's how you tell people and how you be respectful. You know, you need. we needed to listen to football. We needed to listen to cricket. We needed to give them an opportunity, you know, to put their views down, consider them and then bring them together. And so it was a fantastic project, very successful project, but again, a piece of infrastructure which everyone was prou is proud of now. It was challenging at the time, but they're very proud of it now. And what I like about projects like Adelaide Oval is that it makes us feel really proud as a state to have that infrastructure. And we're now bidding for the stadium in Brisbane for the Olympics. Um, we just started that work at the moment. And it's brilliant when, you, when these um, requests for tender come out from Sydney or Perth Stadium, for example, they all mention Adelaide Oval as an example of, you know, the type of product that they want in those states. So it's great to see Adelaide doing something better than the other states. Great story. I love all the behind-the-scenes insights and, and knowledge that you've got. Can you give us an example of another project where collaboration played a key role? I almost asked that question knowing that it's what you do day-to-day -day anyway, but uh, what about another behind-the-scenes story uh, of a project that you've worked on? Could be here or could be beyond globally? More recently, we've been working on Sydney Metro, which is a fascinating project too. So transforming the rail system in Sydney to become a world-class metro, that's what the New South government, New South Wales government want, want to achieve. And that's quite hard because when you look at metros all over the world, um, places like the Middle East in Doha or Hong Kong or Singapore. We've worked on all those metros and they are world-class metros. And so that's the objective, that's the goal in, in Sydney. They have a budget of over $40 billion, but it's not just about a railway line. It's not just about a set of railway stations. It's about where they go to, what environment you create around those stations, the customer experience. I talked about that before. Uh, one of these metros is going out to the new Western Sydney Airport, for example. And what's that going to mean as, as a transformation for Sydney? Sydney will become really three cities. It will become the harbour city, the central city and the, and the western city. 
that's what they want to achieve. And you can use a piece of infrastructure like Sydney Metro to create that vision for the city. So there's a lot of discussion about how we do that. It's not just about the piece of engineering, which is the railway line and the tunnel and, and the train set. So it's a world of, you know, it's a long way away from the way we used to design infrastructure even 10 years ago. So behind the scenes, it's pretty robust, I have to say. Um, you know, it's quite challenging. Of course, a government's always, you know, they have budgets which they have to achieve, um, but there's always political outcomes they want to achieve as well. So those things are always sometimes in conflict, but sometimes when they can achieve a political outcome and a social outcome for an appropriate budget, that's when all the planets line up. But that doesn't always happen. And it can be quite a challenge to get there. So, David, on the surface, Mott McDonald appears to be an engineering company, but uh, you really do way more than that. Can you give us some examples, please? So as I said before, social outcomes is a really important part of our business and we have two areas which is quite interesting. One is education. We have a, a, um, a part of our business called Cambridge Education and we actually train teachers. We, we have quite a significant teacher training business um, including in Australia, in Melbourne at the moment. So that's interesting. We do that for the Victorian government. But we also have a health business, and health is fascinating because it can deliver very important outcomes, social outcomes, as I've said before. And and we do a lot of work for the UK government all across, all across Asia and Africa. And a couple of examples might be uh, a transformation that we made in a community in um, South Africa where it was at a crossroad um, and there were a lot of trucking companies um, drove through this community and unfortunately it was a community that was used mainly as a truck stop um, for uh, prostitution. The problem with that is that it had one of the highest level of AIDS in, in the world, in that community, which was a devastating thing for the people and that community. So our people were amazing. They created a safe way for these workers to have sex and they created a community um, sort of uh, newsletter and uh, guidelines which people got really involved with um, and the prostitution industry bought into, um, I guess, a new way of working and the AIDS in that community has dropped significantly and that's all through an intervention of our people in Mott McDonald, which was fascinating. In Asia, we, um, there's an issue with dengue fever and we had our people try to resolve um, a, uh, an intervention, if you like, to uh, save or to slow down the spread of dengue fever from mosquitoes. And our people, uh, quite interestingly, uh, came up with this concept in, in, in some of these smaller cities of giving younger uh, children... Um, buckets uh, and and fish and they treated them like pets but of course these were places that would attract the mosquitoes and these fish which were you know uh, selected by our people 
um, eat the mosquitoes and the spread of dengue fever in some of these townships drops significantly. So these health interventions, which, which need to be low cost, you know, they don't need to be sophisticated, but they can have a huge impact in those communities. That's a great example of innovation, collaboration, empowering your people to be innovative and purpose. Um, why wouldn't you go to work every day knowing that you can solve Change those type of life. problems? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, a lot of um, people listening to this podcast will be uh, an SME business owner, for example. You run uh, a multinational organisation. Can you share how collaboration um, between a multinational and local supply chain works and what might be some good tips for those that are that are looking to connect with uh, multinational companies? I think just because we're a large company doesn't mean that we have all the skills um, to deliver the types of infrastructure I've been talking about, all the projects I've been talking about. So we uh, in Mount McDonnell are always looking for skills um, and new skills that are emerging to apply to our business. Um, I was telling you earlier that we are looking at visualisation people, for example, movie makers, people from the gaming industry, data analysts, these are, and people that out of banking industries. These are all people that I never thought we would collaborate with. So, I, you know, any company that has uh, a new idea or is an emerging company shouldn't really think that they don't have a place in the type, you know, in creating the infrastructure that we've been talking about. So they, I think, um, be a bit bold and be willing to approach industries that they may not think they could be part of because there are huge opportunities. And I just used a couple of examples. I love um, Ben Crow, who's um, Ash Barty or Team Barty, as they yes. say, um, mindset coach. Um, I've seen him interviewed. I highly recommend everyone Googles him. Great guy. He talks about creating a to-be list rather than a to-do list. What's on David Johnson's to-be list? Wow, that's a big question, Natasha. I think, well, for me, I would really like to help companies or clients become net zero. I think that's really important for the planet that we get our ducks in a row and we explore new uh, ways of doing things so we can achieve net zero before our government even sets targets, which they haven't done in Australia, of course, but most states have done that. So for me, net zero outcomes are really important and we are looking at all sorts of technology, which is fascinating, you know, transforming the bus fleet in New South Wales to electric, but creating the electricity with hydrogen and how we do that and how do we deliver that into a city like Sydney is fascinating. Offshore wind, we're not only building wind farms, of course, on land, but we're now designing offshore wind all over Asia at the moment. Um, these things are important because they do two things. They save the planet in terms of our carbon footprint, but they lower the cost of electricity. And lowering the cost of electricity is very important for communities, especially um, communities in Asia who really need a leg up to have a better social outcome. 
And if you can give them cheaper electricity, a lot of things can come from that. That's a a focus area for me at the moment. Um, As a leader in Mont McDonald, we just want to create a vision for our clients to, to be able to achieve net zero pathways and outcomes for their businesses. In terms of the business of Mont McDonald, I would like to see it grow, but grow in the right way. I don't think we need to be huge. I mean, we're already a thousand people. My vision was always to try and keep to a thousand people, but I think we will exceed that because we're winning so much work. But I would like to focus on high quality work, good projects, and as I said before, technical excellence. Because if we just get too big, we end up just doing projects for the sake of keeping a whole bunch of people employed. That's not my vision. My vision is to do high-quality, interesting work and looking to the future. Any final tips for those that are listening today, David? So as a leader, I spend a lot of time trying to find great people to work in the business. Um, You talk about, uh, we talked about culture and strategy, that's fine. But in the end, it's all about the people. So as a leader, invest a lot of time in trying to find great people. And, you know, when I look at our business now, we were two people 10 years ago, a thousand people now. We've introduced... You know, 150 very senior leaders into the business and I've interviewed most of those people and that's been great and I've learnt so much from those people and I continue to learn from those people. So as a leader, invest time in, uh, you, you know, your future leaders and, and they will take the business, as I said, beyond a 1,000 people and where that will take Mott McDonald in the future, who, who knows? But it's, uh, it's a great opportunity for some young people to do what I've done. You've driven an amazing culture within that organisation. That's a great tip. So thank you for your time, David. That's all right. I really enjoyed it. At SA Leaders, we are all about collaboration and community. If you're curious to know more about how we help businesses and leaders just like you to scale and grow beyond their glass ceilings, then visit our website at www.saleaders.com.au. And please don't forget to subscribe, share this podcast with your network and write a review if you really enjoyed it. This has been an Audiosity production. I'm Natasha Milani and I look forward to chatting with you next time. Happy connecting and see you soon.